morning. The title of this morning's message is The Works, quote-unquote, of Abraham, question mark. <laughs> the works of Abraham? What? <laughs> this morning I want to talk to you about the works of Abraham. What exactly were these, quote-unquote, works? And what did these works of Abraham accomplish? And how are we encouraged to work the same kind of works? Now, we mostly know Abraham as a man of faith. So why then did Jesus talk to the Pharisees about Abraham's works? We see part of his conversation in John chapter 8, beginning with verse 31. It says this, Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We be Abraham's seed, and we were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Jesus answered them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. And the servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. If the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word hath no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and ye do that which ye have seen with your father. <laughs> and they, the Pharisees, answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus saith unto them, If ye were Abraham's children, ye would do the works of Abraham. But now ye seek me to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God, and this did not. Abraham. So what were the works that Jesus was referring to? If we look back in chapter 6 of John, Jesus tells us what kind of work he was referring to. In chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then the following day, those who had been well fed went looking for him the next day. We're going to start with verse 26, which is they've come to see him because they want another meal. <laughs> so it says, Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, ye seek me not because ye saw the miracles, but because ye did eat the loaves and were filled. Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath the Father sealed. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him who he hath sent. Abraham believed God. That was the work, quote unquote, that Abraham was known for. Abraham believed that God was true and that what he said and promised was also true. And Abraham, unlike these Pharisees, also believed that the word of God who appeared to him was also who he said he was. The living word appeared to Abraham in the form of a man. And Abraham accepted this man as God and believed what he had to say. The living word appeared to the Pharisees in the form of a man, and they completely and utterly rejected him. They would not believe. This was the work that the Pharisees refused to do. They would not believe that the truth given to them by the word of God himself. Now, is believing God the only work that Abraham is known for? No, he was also known for his quote-unquote obedience. <laughs> Lots of quotes today. <laughs> because of his response to God when God told him to offer his son as a sacrifice. So Abraham was known for his faith and his faith actions. And we can see this in the book of James. The book of James is most likely the very first book of the New Testament that was written. So most likely James hadn't read anything written by the Apostle Paul, <laughs> who was, as we know, all about the gospel of grace. Now I say this because we need to understand the context of the book of James because we're going to be looking in there. We need to understand who wrote it, when it was written, and who it was written to. It was written by Jesus' half-brother James, who was leading the church of mostly new Jewish believers in Jesus in Jerusalem. And many scholars date this letter to be written approximately around the time of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Not exactly sure, but in that general vicinity. 
So we're talking about the very early point in the church. <laughs> the very early church was Jewish. The very early church was only Jewish <laughs> because the Jewish people didn't think Messiah was for anybody but them. They believed you could come to Messiah, but you had become Jewish first. <laughs> That's why the book of Galatians was written. <laughs> nope, we don't have to become a Jew. <laughs> the very early church didn't realize, didn't really believe that Messiah came for the whole world. I say this because the book of James doesn't necessarily come across as being very grace-based or even very Jesus-based <laughs> because the name of Jesus is only mentioned twice and the letter isn't addressed to a church of some particular region. Verse one of chapter one says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Greeting. I bring this up because James is not shy in the course of his letter, <laughs> but reminding them to have regard for the law. That's because he's talking to Jews, not Gentiles. And James also completely assumes that his readers are well-versed in the characters of the Old Testament. He understands that Jews are the one either reading or hearing his letter. Also, I believe James is also very hopeful regarding the writing of his letter. At that particular time, the 10 tribes of Israel had been lost and scattered. When the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin went into Babylon, that's all that was left. That's all that went back. The 10 tribes were scattered. So here we see James saying, this letter is to all who are scattered, all the, those who have a Jewish lineage. That's hope. <laughs> that is hope that they too will come into the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Jews at the time of Jesus were called Jews specifically because most of them came out of the tribe of Judah. They weren't called Israelites by that time. They were called the Jews. So it's very interesting that he addresses his letter to all of the Israelites. Also, the term scattered abroad, this terminology is used in Acts chapter 1 as well. It is about the church, those who are Jewish, being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. Acts 1 verse 1 says this, And Saul was consenting to his death. This was before Paul was Paul. <laughs> and this was the stoning of Stephen. And at that time, there was a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem. That's where James was from. And they were all scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. All of this helps us to better understand where James is coming from and why he approaches certain subjects the way he does. He calls his readers brethren. That could refer to being a Jew and or being a Christian. He probably thinks in terms of Jewishness, <laughs> yet he's not shy in this letter about scolding the Jews, those who are listening. We see this in James 4 verse 8. It says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. There's a good sermon for you. <laughs> Is James actually talking to new covenant believers here? No. No, he's not. <laughs> he knows unbelieving Jews would be able to hear and read this letter as well. So James sometimes comes across like Jesus talking to Pharisees, very sharp and pointed in some of his remarks. The scripture we opened with, he goes on to tell them, you are of your father, the devil. Pretty sharp, <laughs> pretty pointed. <laughs> and his point was, you profess to have faith and love in God. And yet God stands before you and you refuse to recognize him. Jesus was only ever sharp with people who professed one thing and didn't actually have it. Because those, are, those were the ones in authority. Those were the ones that were keeping other people from coming to God, even as a Jew. So James knows that not everyone reading and hearing this letter has received Jesus as their Messiah. But I think he also hopes that those who still hold their lineage in Abraham as precious, will at some point acknowledge Jesus as Messiah. Because we know later on, everybody goes out into the world proclaiming the Christ. So they would come across the 12 tribes. But James knows that their old covenant faith, this is important, was truly incomplete. There was a new covenant. There are ministers today that say, 
There was this special time on earth where Jesus left and back to heaven and the temple ended. And the Jews had all of this time where they were still right with God if they had faith in the one true and living God. And Jesus said, absolutely not. <laughs> new covenant. <laughs> the day I die, new covenant. Old covenant now, obsolete. It doesn't work. So that's one of the points he makes in this letter that their faith is truly incomplete because it is apart from Christ. So even if they believe in the one true and living God, not enough, not sufficient. That faith would not save them. This is what I want us to look at this morning, that how faith and works, the works of Abraham in particular in the books of James, and what that actually looks like for us. I will start reading at James chapter 2, verse 14. But before I start, again, I need to give you more context. <laughs> we cannot understand the word of God properly without context. James in chapter 2 is saying that those who have faith in Jesus as Lord and Messiah should not have respect of persons. I didn't want to read the whole thing, but he says, you favor the rich over the poor. Ah, ah, ah. Inconsistent. Those who have faith in Christ and those who are making favorites of the rich, <laughs> This was not acceptable. It was inconsistent with the character of Christ. They should not be favoring the rich over the poor. The Jewish culture, not necessarily the Torah, not necessarily what they were taught in synagogue, was a common belief. If you were rich, God liked you. <laughs> you're blessed and rich because God likes you. He favors you. Oh, you're poor? Just the opposite. If you're poor, there must be something wrong with you. There must be sin in your life. For God will not bless you if you have sin in your life. Very religious thinking. It was very common, though. Rich is blessed, poor is cursed. No. <laughs> so he's telling them, okay, you say you profess faith in Christ. Are you walking in a way that is consistent with who Christ is? James is in the process throughout this letter of revealing inconsistencies in the lives of, quote-unquote, some believers, or at least professing believers. When I was studying through this, it occurred to me, this sounds like Jesus. <laughs> he says, if you continue in my word, you are my disciples indeed. Oh, you are of your father, the devil. <laughs> Two different audiences at the same time. And James does this throughout his book. And we need to know that. Because it makes no sense to say, cleanse your heart and your mind. Come on, you people, what's wrong with you? He's talking to people who profess a faith, but don't have an actual living faith. He sounds like he's talking to Pharisees. Those who say, I have faith in Yahweh. Because he knows he's talking to Jews. So he addresses inconsistencies. One like in chapter 1, verse 22, James says, Be a doer of the word, not a hearer only, deceiving yourselves. He says that's inconsistent. <laughs> you can't be hearing the truth and not doing the truth. It's inconsistent with faith in Christ. Also in James chapter 1, verse 26, he says this, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. Again, we're talking about deceived people. <laughs> this person's religion is worthless. It is inconsistent to be what they understood as religious, which we would translate probably a lover of God and neighbor. Because he talks a lot about how we treat people. And he says it's inconsistent if you are a true lover of God and neighbor that you let your mouth run amok passing judgment on others. Inconsistent. So James is trying to convince his Jewish brethren that there is a difference between those who believe in Christ and those who actually do believe in Christ and have received the living Christ within them. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to have it. Years ago, I worked at Motorola, and we often sat with people we never met before every single day because they were always <laughs> moving people around. And across from me, this young man is using very colorful language, telling totally inappropriate stories. <laughs> and I said, do you know Jesus? Because <laughs> you need to. <laughs> and he said, oh, yeah. What? Tell me about that. Well, I went to this church, and they told me if I got baptized, I would go to heaven. But when did you meet Jesus? 
Well, I got baptized. No, I'm not, I'm not talking about when you got wet. Oh, when did you receive the person of Jesus Christ? And he looked at me like I was from Mars. All he heard was free ticket to heaven, get in this <laughs> bunch of water and your sins will be washed away. He had no living relationship with the one true and living God through Jesus Christ. He just was a wet sinner. <laughs> he professed something that he didn't actually have. And he wouldn't listen to anything contradicting that. He liked to live the way he wanted to live. He wasn't actually interested in knowing the one true and living God through Christ. This is the kind of person that James is talking to. Somebody told me if I got wet. <laughs> and they don't actually have what they thought they were going to receive. There is only one test that reveals the reality of our salvation through Christ. And that is the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. We cannot look to getting wet. Getting wet is good. I love baptismal services. Getting baptized is great. Does not save you. <laughs> okay. I prayed with this one lady one time. She was going through a divorce. She didn't want the divorce. And I talked to her about salvation and Jesus. And she's like, oh, sure. So we prayed the prayer. Nothing. <laughs> no change ever. <laughs> and I was like, Lord, how can somebody pray the prayer and not get saved? She didn't want salvation. She wanted Jesus to take his magic wand and make everything okay. She didn't want God. She wanted what she thought God could do for her. So did she receive the living Christ? No. <laughs> she thought she was manipulating God with her prayer. I have run into people who said, well, I prayed that prayer. I'm going to heaven. Do you got Jesus? <laughs> Salvation is Jesus. It's not what you've done. It's who he is. He is your salvation. I don't care how many times you prayed a prayer or didn't pray a prayer. Did you get Jesus? <laughs> so this is the kind of thing that the Apostle James was fighting with. People who said they had him and there was no evidence in their life that they actually had him. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Are you in the faith, which was the system of salvation that we know as salvation by grace through faith, through Christ alone? Test yourself. In other words, you have to look in there. <laughs> you have to look in there. <laughs> or do you not realize this about yourself, that Jesus Christ is in you? See, he's saying, maybe you did get Jesus, maybe you received him, but you're not aware of it. I received Christ when I was 10. No idea what that meant. <laughs> I was promised a ticket into heaven. <laughs> That's all I knew. We didn't go to church. I had no idea what salvation was. I didn't know I had God. Now, I knew God visited me. I recognized his spirit with me. But I had, at 10, had no understanding of salvation whatsoever. I wasn't raised in a religious home. So you can have Christ and not know it. <laughs> I was 10, okay. <laughs> Once you're adults, we should be able to look in there and go, oh yes, thank you, Jesus, you are in there. But he goes on, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. The Holy Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the living God living in us is the only proof and assurance of salvation. Not our good works. Even though James is talking a lot about evidence of salvation, walking consistently or inconsistently with faith in Christ, this passage is not about good works. James's point is that those who actually believe will have faith fruit. I like to call it that, faith fruit. A faith result, also known as corresponding action. James chapter 2, beginning with verse 14, it says this. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Now, when I was studying this, I thought, everything in me wants to run over to all these other scriptures that Paul wrote. <laughs> you are saved by grace through faith. 
And it's not of yourselves, it is a gift of God. But we have to remember, James more than likely never read that. It wasn't written yet. And so I thought, wow, this is hard <laughs> without the New Testament. If we understand that this is the first book written and is written to Jews, it helps us understand what he's trying to say. Can that faith save him? Now, the word that was added by the translators. Sometimes translators can really help. Sometimes not. <laughs> but in this case, they do. Because he's saying, the few say you have faith. Just like a Pharisee said, we have faith. We believe in the one true God. Does that faith save you? <laughs> is it active and working in you? Or is it something you profess to have? The translators are showing us that he is talking about a specific kind of faith a professed faith, not a living faith. James is, what he's doing is he's juxtaposing inconsistencies with the life of Christ in the life of those who say that they know him. Verse 15, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? This was not allowed even as a Jew. You were responsible for your neighbor. You were responsible to feed the stranger. You were responsible for whoever came to your house and needed a place to stay, if they were a Jew. Remember the story when the neighbor comes to his friend at night, midnight, knocking, saying, I need bread, I need bread? Yes. The law says it's your responsibility to give him what he needs because we are a community. The Jewish culture was very community-minded, very neighborly minded. It was your responsibility. So even he's telling Jews, they know this. <laughs> they know they're not supposed to turn their neighbor away and say, too bad, so sad for you. <laughs> but that's what they were doing. If you don't have love to your neighbor, what good is it? What does this faith for you do? How is it beneficial to the rest of the world? It was inconsistent with having faith in Christ. Verse 17. So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, it's useless, inactive, without life. I like that, without life, because that's exactly what we get when we get Christ. We get life, and these people didn't have that. In other words, their faith wasn't accomplishing anything. Verse 18, I like how he does this. He doesn't say, I say this. He says, this is an argument you're gonna hear. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Can we see somebody else's faith? Not necessarily. Because <laughs> I can't see into your heart. Like the young man who believed that if he got baptized, that that meant he got Jesus. They couldn't look into his heart and see whether or not he actually received Christ. Now, unfortunately, this verse has often been interpreted to mean that believers are required to produce good works as evidence of their salvation. And some translations even add the word good works. It's not in there. That's not what it says. <laughs> the word good is not in this passage of scripture. And that is not at all what James is saying. He's not saying if you're a Christian, you will produce good works as proof. There's a lot of teaching in the body of Christ that, that that's exactly the case. That if you don't produce works, you have to decide whether or not you're really saved. Years ago, as an adult Sunday school teacher, someone came to visit and they were talking about how their relative was a missionary in a foreign country. I think it was a sister. And the husband of the sister had an affair. So all of the talk was, he must have never been saved. Because saved people don't commit adultery. <laughs> so the conclusion was, if you're saved and then you commit sin, you were obviously never saved to begin with. Is that what it says? No. <laughs> That's not the point. But this scripture is used like that against Christians all the time. You have to prove that you're saved. Nope. What's the test? Is Jesus in here? That's the only test. Not what you do or even how you live. James is talking to Jews. Jews are community-minded. The Jews are supposed to take care of their neighbor. And so are we. <laughs> and that's what he's telling. 
as a Jew, this was required. As a believer, how could you not? See, that's his point. You have the love of God in you. How could you not? That's inconsistent. That's all he's saying. <laughs> so James is still juxtaposing a living faith in Christ and a lip service, professed faith. When they do that, they are deceiving themselves. Throughout this book, you hear James saying, don't be deceived. Don't think getting wet makes you saved. <laughs> Understand who you are in Christ if you have him. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Believing that God is one is strictly a Jewish belief. The Jews would say a specific declaration of faith twice a day. It's called the Shema, S-H-E-M-A. And it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So believing that there was only one God was a Jewish principle, <laughs> the very basis of their faith. And so James is saying, big deal. <laughs> you believe there's one God, big deal. That won't save you. Even if you believe Jesus is Messiah, you have to believe Jesus is Savior. You have to receive him. It's kind of like you hear a lot today, the politically correct thing to say is, God is the universe, and the universe is speaking. That faith won't save you. God is not the universe. He is the creator of the universe, and the universe is not talking to you. <laughs> God is talking to you. So James is saying this kind of faith is insufficient to save you. It's crazy. <laughs> Verse 20. Do you want to be shown, you foolish, vain person, that faith apart from works is useless? I put the vein in there because the King James uses it. And I like that because it specifically means empty. <laughs> We're back to the test. What's the test? Holy Spirit. <laughs> Are you empty? Not saved. Not saved. Believing God is one is not enough to save you. You have to believe on the finished works of Jesus Christ. Now he uses the word useless. I think that's a good word. The King James uses the word dead. That's a good word too. In other words, it doesn't contain the very life of God and it doesn't appropriate the promises of God. Verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? See, he's assuming that the answer to this question is yes. But Romans 4, 2 says this, for if Abraham were justified by works, he hath whereof to glory, but not before God. So who's right? <laughs> are we justified before God by our works? Or are we justified before God by Christ? <laughs> this is the verse that Martin Luther had a problem with. Based on this verse, he said we should throw it out of the Bible. Book of James needs to go. Why? Because it contradicts Paul. And the reason that was such a big deal is because Martin Luther had a revelation of grace. When you get a revelation of grace, ain't nobody talking you out of it. <laughs> and he thought James was trying to talk people out of resting in Christ alone for salvation. That's not actually what he's doing here. Again, we, that's why we have to understand who he's actually talking to. He's talking to Jews who may or may not be saved. <laughs> So it depends on how we use words. And this is something that helps when you're studying the Bible too. Often we think what a word means by one author means the same thing if a different author uses the same word. Nope. And that's the problem in this verse. This is why so many believers around the world think they have to prove to God and to the world that they are saved by good works. That that's what proves that they're saved. No, only the Holy Spirit is proof. Nothing, 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 nothing we do proves we're saved. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't walking inconsistently. <laughs> we can walk inconsistently of what we know. But that's really his point here is that how do we know we actually have Christ? So this word justified is really the problem. According to Thayer's lexicon, there are three ways to interpret the word justified. 
The first definition means to render, which means to make our cause to be righteous or such as he ought to be. I like that. God makes us in our spirit man such as we ought to be. We are completely right in his sight. So is this one, because we know what Paul says, is this the word he means? No, it's not. People think it is, which is why they misinterpret the scripture. Number two, the second way to use the very same word, to show or exhibit to events or manifest one to be righteous, such as he is or how he wishes himself to be considered. This is what we do. We manifest or exhibit our righteousness by faith by acting consistently with who we are. (laughs) When we act on our faith, it's our righteousness showing up on the outside. We exhibit who we are, that's the point. We are righteous. Why don't Christians like it when they sin? It's not who we are. So when we're righteous and we sin, we're like, oh, I hate that. (laughs) That's what this is. When our righteousness shows up, when we're following the Holy Spirit, because that's really what he's talking about. Doing what God says to do, not what we feel like doing. The third way is to declare, pronounce, one to be just, righteous, or such as he ought to be. Again, this is what God does. God makes us righteous. And God declares us righteous legally. So we are legally righteous apart from our works. But God doesn't make us righteous so we can act a mess. (laughs) Okay? That's not the point. (laughs) That's misunderstanding grace and turning the message of grace into licentiousness. You're saved by grace. Do whatever you want. No, it's never been about whatever we want. (laughs) It's always been about what he wants. The only definition that fits believers is the second one. The one where we exhibit our righteousness by acting on our faith and doing what God says to do. That's the point. Doing what God says to do, not just what is a good choice. That's what Abraham did. He did what God told him to do. He believed God was good and only good. And the evidence of that was that he did what God told him to do offer Isaac. So what Abraham did was he showed or demonstrated that he was righteous and trusted God by faith. He was right with God and that faith showed up in his life. I like this because I never saw it before. What was his work? What was his corresponding action? He had faith and so he acted on that faith. He acted on what God told him. He wasn't talking about good works. He wasn't about Abraham feeding the neighbor, none of that. He wasn't under the law. He's talking specifically about following the instructions of the God he knew. That's all that God wanted, was for him to trust him and act on that trust. Those are the works of Abraham. Verse 22, seest thou how faith wrought with his works, and by works was faith made perfect. Wrought with means simply works together, (laughs) corresponds. (laughs) The word perfect means complete. It means it reaches its goal. It apprehends what God wants to have done. It means to be mature in your faith. Now, Abraham didn't just come up with a whole bunch of good works to prove he had faith. Abraham's faith was challenged specifically by God. Abraham had a very specific work that he was told to do, to offer Isaac. But why this particular task? Because it directly challenged Abraham's faith in God's promise. This task could only be done if Abraham had matured in his faith to the point that he trusted God's word and character more than he trusted in the physical presence of Isaac. God had proved himself completely faithful to his covenant friend, Abraham. So when God told Abraham to offer Isaac, Abraham knew that God would have to raise him from the dead in order to keep his word. He had come so far with God. God had been revealing himself to him over and over again in different ways. If God had asked him to do this when Isaac was, you know, two, 
<laughs> no, God, not doing it. <laughs> Why? Because his heart was not secure in knowing that God is good and only good. God will only challenge your faith to prove to you you have it. <laughs> Satan will challenge you in your faith to try to get you to let go of it. Years ago, I heard a minister, his name is Terry Mize, and he's a missionary. And he was talking about this very thing. He says, the minute you get a promise, Satan's going to challenge it. Because if he challenges it and says, oh, that'll never happen. Oh, you know you're not going to get with that from God. You really think God loves you. Look at how you live. <laughs> See, what happens is Christians go, oh, you're right. <laughs> I'm not faithful enough. I'm not good enough. Oh, woe is me. God won't bless me. All the lies to try to get a Christian to let go of their promise. But what he says, if you stick to it, there'll be a second challenge. Are you sure you believe? Something will change. Like with healing, something will change. The symptoms will get worse. He says, don't let go. <laughs> don't let go of that promise. Because if you don't let go, you're going to get it. It'll manifest. Satan challenges specifically what you're believing for. God would only challenge your faith to prove to you you have it. You see, he was ready. I love this. Abraham was ready for this test. We think how horrible it was and all this other kind of thing. He was ready. He knew his God. He could do what he did because he believed in this really good God. So we see this in Hebrews eleven seventeen through 19 in the Passion Translation. Faith operated powerfully in Abraham. For when he was put to the test, he offered Isaac. Even though he received God's promises of descendants, he was willing to offer up his only son. For God had promised through your son Isaac, your lineage will carry on your name. Abraham's faith, I love this, made it logical to him that God could raise up Isaac from the dead. And symbolically, that's exactly what happened. He's like, there's no way I'm losing my son. <laughs> the descendants already exist. <laughs> you shall have this. It's not future. It's real. It exists right now. He's like, easy. <laughs> easy. I know this God. God knows that human beings will not act on something we do not believe, especially when it comes to life and death. People often want to debate whether or not the things that happened in the Gospels are real. And one of the arguments that people come up with is, who in their right mind would die for a lie? Who in their right mind would give up their life to promote a lie? When they could just say, oh no, Jesus isn't real, and not be killed. That's just it. We don't act on something unless we really believe it. That was Abraham. He really believed it. Abraham could only have done this if he actually believed and trusted in God's character and promise. What we call obedience is actually our faith in action. I don't like the word obedience. I don't think it's a good word. <laughs> when you look at the Greek, every time you see the word obey, it means to listen attentively. What did Abraham do? He listened attentively. He gave God his attention, and then because he believed what God said, he acted on it. We call it obedience, but actually it's faith in action. Our faith is demonstrated by corresponding action. Not just any action, but an action given to us by God. It was this scripture that God used to speak to me years ago about acting on my faith for healing. I'd been believing for a long time to be healed from fibromyalgia. I had it for years and years and years, and I was sick all the time. So I began asking God what I needed to do to appropriate my healing. The first thing he told me was, keep believing. I did not want to hear that. <laughs> That's probably what he told Abraham when he lied to the king the second time. Just keep believing. We'll get you there. <laughs> Abraham wouldn't have been ready to pass this test when he was lying to the kings of Egypt. And so I didn't know what God was saying was, you're not actually ready. <laughs> Your heart's not fully persuaded. But keep believing. Keep believing. Keep going to the word. Keep going to the word about promises. You know in your mind that it is absolutely true. Keep believing. 
About a year later, I had a course on, on healing at Karis Bible College with Barry Bennett and Carly Terdez, and their stuff is on YouTube. And they were teaching about making a faith demand by a physical action. In other words, by acting on what I believed. I asked the Lord how I could make this demand, <laughs> and he told me to agree with my pastor in prayer the following Sunday. I know a lot of times ministers will say, do something you couldn't do before. Well, I had lots of medicine. I could do anything. <laughs> so I was like, that doesn't work for me. How do I make this demand? And he said, agree with your pastor in prayer. There is power in agreement. So that's what I did. The following Sunday, I went up to have prayer with my pastor. He prayed for approximately 15 seconds. My pastor didn't ask you what was wrong. What do you need? Healing, okay. <laughs> he didn't want the details because they don't matter. When you're there to pick up what God has promised, the details about how horrible and how long and all this do not matter. <laughs> you're here to pick up what God has promised. So he said, be healed in the name of Jesus. We high-fived each other. <laughs> and I went back to my chair. <laughs> I said, of course, had said amen. <laughs> I just continued to worship. I didn't have any expectation. I knew what God told me to do. That's faith. Doing what God tells you to do. God said, make a demand. This is how you're going to do it. And that's what I did. As I continued to worship, like it's like we do here, we have people praying while people are worshiping. Went back to worship, <laughs> and all of a sudden, out of my chest came a gusher of the Holy Spirit. And he just overwhelmed me in his presence and in his love. I then heard God speak audibly in my ear. He said, you can quit taking your meds for fibromyalgia. I was like, yay! Now what, you know what? I did not feel one bit different. <laughs> but I knew I had received. I had made a demand on the power of God that was already in me by doing what God told me to do. <laughs> and from that time on, I never took any more medicine. I stayed in my medicine cabinet for a while, and every day Satan would say, don't you want to take one of those? Nope. <laughs> See, I didn't feel any different yet. But I knew. See, Satan will challenge you to let go. God reminds you of what you've already received. So I experienced my healing. Now, one of the questions that God had for me prior to this was, could you throw away all of your medication without being afraid you're going to need it tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> could I act on what I said I believed? So I looked in my heart. Yep, we can look in there. <laughs> Holy Spirit's in there. I looked in my heart, and I was like, oh, man, there's a little bit of fear that if I threw it all away, I'd have to call the doctor, look really stupid, and told them I threw it away because I thought I was healed. <laughs> there's just a little bit of fear left. And that's when God said, you're almost there. Keep believing. Keep believing. See, God wasn't keeping anything away from me. My heart was not yet fully persuaded that I actually already had what he said I had. So I went back to meditating on God's word and asking God to show me how to make this particular demand. To make a demand means to write a check. It doesn't mean to stomp your foot at God and be mad. <laughs> It means to pull out. That's what a demand is. When we write a check at the bank, it pulls out money. When we step out in faith, corresponding action, the action God gives us, out comes the power. That's what faith does. It pulls on the power of God that's already resident within us. When we act on what we believe, power is released. This is exactly what Abraham did. He believed God completely. He was fully persuaded. And it was because he believed and trusted God that he could physically act on what God told him to do. The book of Romans tells us that Abraham was fully persuaded regarding the promise of a son, but it would be many years later before it actually came to pass. 
Abraham knew God personally. And it was because of their covenant relationship and fellowship that Abraham came to be fully persuaded. We can't persuade our own heart. That's what Jesus does as we cooperate with him. Now, I do have to give you a disclaimer. Whenever you talk about this kind of thing, you gotta have a disclaimer. Throwing away your medicine is not a good way to take hold of your healing. <laughs> Don't do something unless God tells you to do it. It used to be the people would try to prove that they had faith. They would take off their glasses and stomp on them and then have to call the doctor tomorrow because they can't see. <laughs> they thought they were proving they have faith by their works. See, they did what somebody else did. Instead of saying, God, how do I take this? What's my corresponding action? How do you want me to believe and pull out the power of God in my life? My point is that Abraham wasn't doing good works to prove his faith. It had nothing to do with that. His faith and trust in God moved him to do what God said. God isn't looking for us to do good works to prove our faith. He wants us to trust him and to do what he tells us to do, thereby having the fruit of faith come out in our actions. Faith acts on what God says, pure and simple. Faith acts on what God says. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled which saith, Abraham believed God, and it was imputed unto him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. <laughs> That's exactly what it says in Genesis 2. <laughs> Here, James' point is, he was made righteous first by faith. And because he knew his covenant relationship, he could act on what God told him to do. He had complete trust in his God. James reminds the reader that he was already declared righteous by God before he ever offered Isaac on the altar. So it can't be that James is trying to tell people you have to do works to be right with God. It was because he already believed God. He already believed that God was good and only good and faithful to his word, that Abraham could act on what God told him to do. You see, if we don't actually believe, that's what the Lord had shown me. He says, I know you know the truth. I know you know, you believe that you have healing in you. All of this unbelief comes against us. We believe what we feel. Our heart, the place where we believe, it believes what we feel. <laughs> it's overcoming that unbelief through the word of God that enables us to take hold of what God has for us. Verse 24. Ye see then how that by works, by corresponding action, a man is justified, shown outwardly to be righteous. <laughs> in righteous in a way that others can see, and not only by faith. And that kind of faith is he talking about here? God is one God. That's insufficient. You have to have Christ. God sees our heart, but other people can't see into our heart. Who we are and whose we are is made evident in what we believe and how we live. Because how we live always comes out of what we believe. Always. Always. We only live according to how we believe, whether we like that or not, <laughs> whether we're, we're believing good or not. Our life is put into action by what we believe. Verse 25, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified, shown to be righteous by faith through her works, <laughs> her corresponding action, when she received the messengers and had sent them out another way. Rahab had faith in the one true and living God of Israel. Joshua 2, verse 9, Rahab said unto the men, I know that Yahweh, the Lord, has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all of the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, how does faith come? By hearing. <laughs> and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. Why? Because they believed it. <laughs> there was a corresponding action because they believed it. <laughs> and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on earth beneath. 
This was old covenant. Knowing that he was the one true God was all that you needed. <laughs> this woman recognized Yahweh as the one true and living God. And based on what she knew of him, she made an agreement with the spies. It is interesting that she realized that they were coming for that land. I don't know how she knew, but she knew. And in order to save herself and her entire family, she did what she did because she believed. She acted on what she believed about God. And she made a deal with the spies. And the truth is, just like her, we always live on what we really believe. We always act on what we really believe. I find it interesting that James picked Abraham and Rahab as examples of living out of your faith. One being what we know as Jewish and the other being a Gentile. All before the law, because it's not about works. <laughs> it's not about works. Yet both are saved and made right with God, not by keeping rules or through performing good deeds, but by believing and trusting in the one true and living God. I believe James is saying that living out of our faith in God is for both the Jew and the Gentile. They weren't completely sure of that in the, in the early church, that it is in fact consistent with a living faith in Jesus Christ. The last verse says this, for as the body without the spirit is dead, has no life, can't accomplish anything, it's worthless, it's useless, so faith without works is dead also. Faith will always have a corresponding action. Always. You can't help it. <laughs> you act on what you believe. Here, James is still juxtaposing a living faith in a living God versus a dead profession of faith that can't produce the love and life of God within a person. Believing that God exists or that God is one is not enough. We must believe in the living word himself, Jesus Christ. We live out of what we truly believe. If we want to change our actions, we have to change our believing. A profession of faith should be followed by a fruit of faith, a corresponding action, not as a demand or a proof, but as fruit, <laughs> as a natural outcome, doing what God tells us to do. James's point is that a living faith will be lived out where others can see it, feel it, and benefit from it. I like the scenarios presented with each of the characters James chose. With Abraham, it was an example of what often happens when we are believing for a promise from God to come to pass. Our faith is challenged whether or not we will continue and keep believing in the midst of a physical contradiction to that promise. Like when God told me, just keep believing, you're going to get there. <laughs> and then with Rahab, it was the challenge to keep believing in the midst of the Israelites traveling around the city seven times, trusting that they would see the scarlet ribbon she had placed in the window so that she and her entire family could be saved. For her, it must have felt like the whole world was her enemy and that she might not make it out alive. But she trusted and believed in and acted on that faith in Yahweh God. When I began this message, I proposed three questions. What exactly are the works that Abraham was known for? What did the works of Abraham accomplish? And how are we encouraged to work the same kind of works? These kinds of works, the works of Abraham that Jesus spoke of, were Abraham's continually believing the truth of who God revealed himself to be and the truth of what he promised. God sent Abraham the pre-incarnate Christ, the living word of God himself, and Abraham believed. When God told Abraham to offer Isaac as a sacrifice, he was ready. He was a man full of faith and mature in his faith and in his relationship with God. And he simply did what God told him to do because he knew his God. Those who know their God will do exploits. <laughs> Abraham knew his God was El Shaddai, the almighty God. His God was Yahweh, the up close and personal covenant keeping God. His God was Elohim, the plural creator who is somehow still one. <laughs> his God was the God who sees me and the God who hears my every cry. His God was the God who does the impossible for those who will believe. His God was the God who would provide himself as a lamb for all mankind. His God 
is our God. His God-man that came to dinner as the God-man who knocked on his door and invited himself to dinner and had dinner and had a couple of angels. He believed him. It's the same man, the same God-man knocked on our hearts and came in when we said yes. He's, that's our God. He is all of those things. He is faithful beyond our ability to comprehend faithfulness. His power is beyond our ability to understand. The only thing that we really have to struggle with is our heart. (laughs) There's nothing wrong with God, and there's nothing wrong with you. (laughs) But sometimes there's something wrong with our believer. (laughs) We're not fully persuaded that our God is who we know he is. Abraham's works were simply the corresponding actions that come out of believing and trusting in his covenant friend, Yahweh God. His works or corresponding actions were the result, the fruit of believing. They were demonstrations of faith. So what did Abraham's demonstrations of faith accomplish? Technically nothing. (laughs) Offering Isaac on the altar didn't change a thing as far as God was concerned. He had already made the promise. He already told him that everything he told him was true and was, was as good as done. So why this? So that Abraham would know his God in a way he hadn't before. Abraham had so come into relationship with God that God could trust him to do anything he asked him to do. Abraham trusted God, and God trusted Abraham. That's the kind of relationship they had. This test of his faith simply revealed that Abraham actually and authentically trusted in his covenant friend, Yahweh God, completely in his heart. He had a living faith in a living God. God is always pleased with faith. God loves for us to believe him. When we believe him, we receive everything he wants us to have. And more than anything, God wants us to know him and enjoy him so that we can trust him. What are the works that we are encouraged to do? The same as Abraham. (laughs) John 6, verse 29. Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. Everything begins and ends with Jesus. It is out of relationship with God the Father through Jesus the Son and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that faith becomes complete or mature. The more we know our Father and our Jesus, the more we will have confidence, we will have faith to step out and do whatever he tells us to do, no matter how impossible it is. (laughs) We will find that we love God with all of our heart, soul, and mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Not because we have to, but because we can't help it. (laughs) His life becomes our life, and his faith becomes our faith. That's part of what James is trying to convey. The more we know and trust our God, the more we act just like him. And God does have works of faith for us to do. And they all come out of his life in us as we trust him. Amen? Father God, we thank you for Jesus, the God-man. We thank you that you live and abide and stay with us, that you have come in and made us righteous. And there is a document somewhere in heaven that says, yes, these people are righteous. We are legally righteous before you no matter what we do. But you are always calling us to live out our faith with consistency, that who we know you to be is who we are too. There's nothing we cannot do. There is nothing we cannot overcome. There is nothing that has the ability to change us or take away from us anything that you have provided. Yes, you do call us to say, hey, spend more time with me. Your heart needs to be persuaded in a particular area. But we thank you that you work with us, just like we work with you. It is a two-way street. It is us knowing and believing and communing with who you are that changes us outwardly into what we already are inwardly. We thank you, Father, for faith, that you have given us faith as a gift. (laughs) We don't have to make it or stir it or (laughs) we already have it. And as we 
spend time with you, the unbelief goes away and our faith becomes complete and effective and it changes not only us, but others. I thank you, Father God, that we can see with the eyes of faith what we can't see with our physical eyes. I thank you that you reveal things to us, that when I meet somebody, I can see that seed of salvation that is in them, regardless of what's coming out of their mouth. I can see you. I thank you, Father God, that you call us to walk by faith in you, a good, good God, a perfect Father, a living Word, our very life. We thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.